Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 314.159265. Wait, that's something else. Today's big Bible question is, how important is unity? So hello, friends. Happy Thursday to you. In case you missed it last night, I taught a Facebook Live message on how God will take us through the desert wilds or the wilderness spiritually in our lives and how those desert wilds are often the best place to meet God and know Him on a deeper level. We looked at the lives of Moses and Hagar and even Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit led into the wilderness and brought out in the power of the Spirit. If that sounds interesting to you, hop on over to Facebook and watch the video. All you got to do is search for VBC Salinas, Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, and you will see that video posted there. I think it's called something like When God Takes You Through the Desert, or you can jump on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, for today's episode number 314 and click the link and it will take you there. Our Bible readings for this fine day start with 2 Kings 18, followed by Psalms 132, 133, 134, then Hosea 11, and Philemon 1. Speaking of 2 Kings 18, you could probably win a bet with most Christians on this passage with a simple question. Does the Bible talk about drinking your own pee and eating the, uh, well, other stuff? Most people would say no to that question and then give you a well-deserved look of disgust. But 2 Kings 18 says otherwise, as we will soon see. Brace yourselves. The bad news is the fifth grade boy in me wouldn't let me just simply gloss over 2 Kings 18.27. The good news, though, is that the fifth boy, grade boy in me is not in complete control so we won't be discussing that verse anymore. Instead, our focus is actually on Psalm 133, which has long been one of my favorite psalms. Yes, we've talked about unity among the people of God before, but that's one of those subjects that we can talk about more than once because it is absolutely ubiquitous in the Bible all throughout and quite very important. So let us read our psalms and then discuss the blessings of unity. We will start with Psalm 132, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured and how he swore an oath to the Lord, making a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling for the mighty one of God. We heard of the ark in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let's worship at his footstool. Rise up, Lord. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests be clothed with righteousness and may your faithful people shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I will teach them, their sons will also sit on your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. I will abundantly bless its food. I will satisfy its needy with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation and its people will shout for joy. There I will make a horn grow for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown he wears will be glorious. 
Psalm 133, verse 1, this is our focus passage. How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. It is like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. Psalm 134. Now bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand in the Lord's house at night. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. So it's quite clear from our focus chapter, Psalm 133, that unity and harmony among followers of God is a wonderful and blessed thing. But what is this business about it being like the oil running down Aaron's beard or the dew on Mount Hermon? What is that all about? Because quite frankly, those are a couple of strange similes to use here, especially for us in the West. I believe what this is referring to is the holy anointing oil of Exodus 30, oil that was used to consecrate items for use in the temple and to consecrate or prepare and set apart as holy Aaron and the other priests. And we read about this oil in Exodus 30, 23 through 30, where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Take for yourself the finest spices, twelve and a half pounds of liquid myrrh, half as much of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, twelve and a half pounds of cassia by the sanctuary shekel, and a gallon of olive oil. Prepare from these a holy anointing oil, a scented blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be holy anointing oil. With it you are to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table with all its utensils, the lampstand with its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. Consecrate them, and they will be especially holy." Whatever touches them will be consecrated. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. So I think what the psalmist is suggesting here is that brothers, Christians, followers of God, dwelling together in unity becomes a precious and blessed mixture of people in the same way that these spices and oils we just read about, when combined with olive oil, make a mixture of holy anointing oil. The individual ingredients themselves weren't blessed and holy, but together the mixture becomes holy and anointing. Likewise, there's something blessed and beautiful about the people of God being together in such wonderful harmony and unity. Think of it this way, and this is sort of a crude example, not crude as in um, dirty, but crude as in basic, I guess. But flour, sugar, cocoa, and oil are nice. But when you combine them in the right ratio, they make brownies from scratch, and you will have a wonderful thing. Likewise are the people of God, when they're combined together in great unity and love, it's more holy and anointed and gospel-proclaiming than just one Christian doing his own thing. This is why we are not to forsake the gathering together of the body of Christ, even in a pandemic. Our church, for instance, is meeting outside, but we're still meeting because it's important because there's a greater blessing on the people of God together. We are not a bunch of solo people practicing our religion 
individually according to our own preferences and beliefs. No, that's not who we are. We are a mixture of people under Christ, the head of the church, following his ways, not our preferences, a body of Christ together. That's another mixture we are. We are not a bunch of ingredients, but we are a body of Christ combined together in the same way that the holy anointing oil is. So I believe I have mentioned before that one of the greatest deficiencies of the English language is the fact that the second person singular and plural are both the same word, you. Thus, when reading something, we don't know if it's directed at an individual you or a bunch of yous unless we know the context for sure. One of the pastor Facebook groups I'm part of recently had a poll which was wondering if Bible translators should translate the second person plural in fr- from the Greek to English uh, to y'all, and, or maybe even you guys, so that people would understand how many of the Bible's commands are not to individual, but to y'alls. And in the Greek, it's very clear. The Greek second person plural is different from the Greek second person singular. And so you can just look at a passage and know if it's directed to one person or to many people. And I think that's the benefit of y'all or you guys. As a native Southerner myself, I'm all for that, to tra- changing the Bible translations to better reflect the Greek. I believe that y'all, grits, Alabama football, and excellent biscuits are are our monumental contributions to Western culture as Southerners. Yes, I know about the less than positive contributions, but let's not focus on the negative today. Why not? So when the people of God come together in obvious unity and love, they proclaim the gospel in a similar way as when the anointing oil mixed with spices, when it's poured on a priest, you can smell and see the specialness of the oil. And people coming together in unity, proclaim the specialness of that group and go even further. They proclaim the good news of Jesus, as Jesus tells us in John 17, 20-23. Jesus says, I pray not only for these, my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. The world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. That's John 17, 20-23. What Jesus is saying is, when the people of God are together in unity, in harmony, in oneness, then the world will know that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. So here's Spurgeon to drive the point home for us and also to explain the Dew of Hermon reference. And Charles Spurgeon writes, As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, from the loftier higher mountains, the moisture appears to be wafted to the lesser hills. The dews of Hermon fall on Zion. The Alpine Lebanon ministers to the minor elevation of the city of David, and so does brotherly love descend from the higher to the lower, refreshing and enlivening in its course. Holy unity is like dew, mysteriously blessed, full of life and growth for all plants of grace. It brings with it so much benefit 
diction that it is as no common dew, but as that of the dew of Hermon, which is especially copious and far-reaching. The proper rendering is as the dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. And this tallies with the figure which has already been used. For there the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. That is, in Zion, or better still, in the place where brotherly love abounds, where love reigns, God reigns. Where love wishes blessing, there God commands that blessing. God has but to command it, and it is done. He is so pleased to see his dear children happy in one another that he fails not to make them happy in himself. He gives especially his best blessing of eternal life. For love is life, dwelling together in love. We have begun the enjoyments of eternity, and these shall not be taken from us. Let us love forevermore, and we shall live forevermore. This makes Christian brotherhood so good and pleasant. It has Jehovah's blessing resting upon it. Oh, for more of this rare virtue, not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells and stays, not the spirit which separates and secludes, but the spirit which dwells together, not that mind which is all for debate and argument and difference, but that which dwells together in unity. Never shall we know the full power of the anointing till we are of one heart and one spirit. Never will the sacred dew of the spirit descend in all of its fullness on us until we are perfectly joined together in the same mind. Never will the covenanted and commanded blessing come forth from the Lord our God until once again we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, lead us into this most precious spiritual unity and harmony for thy son's sake. Amen and amen. Dear friends, let the Lord lead you and the people you are with into unity, because there the commanded blessing of the Lord is. Well, let us continue in Second Kings 18, starting in verse 1. In the third year of Israel's king Hoshea, son of Elah, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, became king of Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, shattered the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made, for until then the Israelites were burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its borders, from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Israel's king Hoshea, son of Elah, Assyria's king Shalmaneser marched against Samaria and besieged it. The Assyrians captured it. At the end of three years, in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Israel's king Hoshea, Samaria was captured. The king of Assyria deported the Israelites to Assyria and put them in Hala along the Habor, Gorzon's river, and in the cities of the Medes. Because they did not listen to the Lord their God, but violated his covenant, all he had commanded Moses, the servant of the Lord. They did not listen, and they did not obey. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Assyria's king Sennacherib attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. 
So King Hezekiah of Judah sent word to the king of Assyria at Lachish, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you demand from me, I will pay. The king of Assyria demanded 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold from King Hezekiah of Judah. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver found in the Lord's temple and in the treasures of the king's palace. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's sanctuary and from the doorposts he had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent the field marshal, the chief of staff, and his royal spokesman, along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They advanced and came to Jerusalem, and they took their position by the aqueduct of the upper pool, by the road to the launderer's field. They called for the king, but Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to them. Then the royal spokesman said to them, Tell Hezekiah this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. What are you relying on? You think mere words are strategy and strength for war? Who are you now relying on so that you have rebelled against me? Now look, you are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely on him. Suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you must worship at this altar in Jerusalem? So now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you two thousand horses if you're able to supply riders for them. How then can you drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? How can you rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Now have I attacked this place to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, Attack this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the royal spokesman, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak with us in Hebrew within earshot of the people on the wall. But the royal spokesman said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words only to your master and to you? Hasn't he also sent me to speak to the men who sit on the wall, destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? The royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, he can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord by saying, certainly the Lord will rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to King Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and each may drink water from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. But don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim, Haina and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of the land has rescued his land from my power? 
So, will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? But the people kept silent. They did not answer him at all, for the king's command was, Don't answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him the words of the royal spokesman. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria will be his king because they refuse to repent. A sword will swirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will be roused like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. Judah still wanders with God and is faithful to the holy ones. Philemon chapter 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, though I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me your even your very own self. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ 
Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, dear friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you. Good day, and Godspeed.